the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. With Christmas almost upon us, I was joined this week by a number of Irish Times writers to discuss their major business stories of 2018. Later, you'll hear from Mark Paul recounting the extraordinary tale of data breaches at independent news and media, and Laura Slattery on Facebook's many woes and the launch here of Virgin Media. But I began by talking to Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan about Brexit, the banks, and our continuing economic recovery. Cliff Taylor, you're very welcome to studio. Let's talk about the economy going gangbusters again. Once again, the fastest growing in Europe. Remarkable when you think that it's only five years since we came out of our EU IMF bailout. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when we look back, 2018 will probably be remembered. One of the things 2018 will will be remembered for is the year that we finally recouped the losses, I guess, uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of employment, in terms of unemployment of of the crash years. So we now have income levels uh, and output levels and uh, employment levels, most importantly, which are back back at or or in most cases above what they were at the peak of the last boom, which which is extraordinary. An average household's disposable income almost um, at the high we had just before the crash yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, very, very little off it. So I, I think you could say that incomes are back are back at the level they were before mm. uh, b- before the crash. Clearly, there you know there are there are there are caveats there. People who are renting are still have very very little disposable income. People who are looking to buy houses are still heading into a market where prices are, are very inflated. That of course was the case before the crash as well. But looking down through the through the list of figures, unemployment now down to its lowest level in a decade, heading down towards five percent. You know, the economy isn't far off what might be called full employment. More than 60,000 jobs created over the last year, exports up 14%. And while, as we know, our GDP figures are, you know, completely messed up by the activity of multinationals, we're still probably looking at some at real growth in the economy, depending on how you measure it, of maybe 4 or 5% over the years. So we've all been a bit Brexit-obsessed probably over the last few months. Mm, we'll talk but, about Brexit in a few minutes. Absolutely, but the economy, there's no doubt that uh, despite that, the economy sure, has been... Sure, but is it a case of haves and have-nots? Because the central bank put out some figures uh, this very day, actually, uh, telling us, reminding us that over 64,500 people are still in mortgage arrears and their owner-occupied uh, mortgage arrears is also uh, many, many thousands of uh, buy-to-lets in arrears as well. I mean, this is a legacy of the crash. Sure. It's one that's still hanging around like a, a bad smell. And you're talking about more than €9 billion Euros worth of mortgages in yeah. one form of, of arrears or another. And, and a lot of that is... 720 days old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I think the wider picture is that a large section of the society has seen in, in living standards rise over the last year. Unemployment has fallen right across the country. Earnings have risen. Incomes have risen right across the country. People in Dublin are still earning more. But there has been a very widespread uh, gain uh, from, from the growth we've seen. But you're right, there are legacy problems from the bust and that is the most obvious one. And I think the most striking thing looking at those figures today was, as you say, the number still in very long-term arrears of over two years. So you still have 28,000 households or 28,000 mortgages still in, in in arrears of two years or more. That figure has fallen fairly significantly over the last few years, but the fall has now slowed in those very long-term arrears. So we still have, we're still stuck, if you like. There's still a lot of people stuck there. Uh, and and in very long term arrears, and uh, one of the interesting thing things is looking at the figures that in terms of the amount of arrears outstanding, the money owed 
those people account for 90%, so nine euros out of every 10 that's owed by distressed mortgage holders is owed by that group of uh, mm. two years or more in distress. So yeah, sure. very significant problem and I think you know reflects badly on the banks and, and indeed on the central bank that this wasn't dealt with much more quickly. Uh, Joe, um, let's talk about the banks. Actually, in those figures from the central bank today, mortgage arrears, uh, 10% of the accounts on the owner-occupied side uh, 10% of those arrears are now owned by non-banks. So, you know, these vulture funds and other entities who've come into the market uh, in recent years, uh, 2% uh, by unregulated funds. Yeah, I suppose we've seen a development. Up until this year, uh, most of the uh, home loans have been sold by banks that have been leaving the market. Uh, this year, we've seen kind of a step change where we've actually seen the, 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 the state-owned banks or the, the bailed-out banks beginning to look so at... So the likes of Permanent TSB. Permanent TSB is, is the main one. So Permanent TSB came out earlier this year. Permanent TSB is essentially a mortgage bank. So when it comes to it, um wasn't able to sell. It didn't have commercial mortgages to sell to, uh, commercial loans to sell to the uh, to NAMA back in 2010. So it essentially is a, a mortgage bank. So... Its problem was that it obviously has to, it has the highest or had the highest um, level of, of, of non-performing loans among the, the, the remaining uh, continuing uh, bailed-out banks at about 28% at the beginning of this year. So it was under huge pressure to, uh, to, to lower from, this, from the ECB and from the central bank to lower uh, its level of non-performing loans back down to the, the European average, uh, which is at the moment is about 3.5%. To do that... It had to look at owner-occupied loans. So it had to cross the Rubicon. Um, it put about 3.8 billion of loans, uh, buy to let and owner-occupier loans on the market in February. Uh, that caused a huge uh, uproar, particularly around a, a cohort of, of borrowers, about 900 million, which was uh, restructured loans, uh, which were split mortgages, where the borrower would have, say, had a 400,000 mortgage, could only afford to pay off 200, pay the interest and capital on 200,000 of that, and the remaining... So the rest is warehouse. We put in warehouse. For a future so restructured, restructured, and it was restructured at a time mm. when you had the, the Troika, also comprising the European Commission and the ECB, in there, pushing the banks to, to do, do the restructuring uh, of loans. And now you have the guidelines from the ECB saying that this type of restructure, or maybe the, the type of restructure that, that permanent TSB put in mm. place, that, uh, that, they, that still qualifies yeah, sure. as non-performing loans. So if, they had to start moving on those. In fact, I seem to recall Patrick Conahan when he was governor of the central bank in the middle of the arrears uh, crisis, saying that, in his opinion, split mortgages were the solution to the problem. Yeah, and at that time you had the Troika in town as well. But... The nature of the permanent TSB uh, split mortgage uh, restructures under ECB definitions or EBA definitions, it remains, uh, they remain non-performing loans. So it had to move on that. So they kind of scaled back the, 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 the loan sale, I think, to 2.1 billion. Uh, that was mainly borrowers who were a number of years in arrears, uh, people who hadn't engaged or people who they couldn't find a solution for. Uh, and, and they sold that off. They agreed to sell that off in July. But they still had a rump of, uh, that still brought them to, only brought them down to about 16%. Um, so they had to look at solutions for the uh, a group of 1.3 billion of, of loans that had been restructured and will remain non-performing mm. indefinitely. And it was the first of the Irish banks to go down this route. It's gone into a, uh, done a securitization where basically it is uh, put these 1.3 billion, including the split mortgages, into a securitization vehicle and selling uh, bonds on the back of that. Now, most of those bonds will be bought by a fixed income uh, giant uh, PIMCO. 
I think other banks um, that still have high levels of NPLs and NPLs that would not be that have been restructured and remain NPLs for the for the long term would probably look at this uh, solution as well, going down the uh, off balance balance sheet securitization uh, route as well. In the meantime, you have. Um, AIB, which sold uh, about 2.1 billion of non-performing loans, mm-hmm. that was commercial uh, buy-to-let and commercial uh, commercial loans, no on- owner-occupier in that. They have another portfolio of about 3.4 billion of power-value loans. Again, no owner-occupier loans in that. But when they come down to the to the rump, they may look at the likes of of securitizations to get rid of or move off balance sheet. Uh, some of the remaining uh, non-performing uh, owner-occupier yeah. loans. Just on PTSB, um, Joe, because the bank has uh, shrunk considerably uh, over the past number of years. It's had to, you know, it's had to sell off bits because of its uh, European Commission state aid deal, because of the non-performing loans, as you've mentioned, and, and for other reasons and so forth. It has really uh, shrunk down. Still owes a lot of money in terms of the bailout. But does it have a future as a small, essentially a small mortgage lender? Well, what happens, so removing these non-performing loans, what it does at the end of the day is expose permanent CSB for the issues that it has. Um, and it is a monoline uh, business model, which mm-hmm. is around mortgages. Mortgage uh, growth is not growing at the pace that maybe banks would like. Um, it has a high cost base. It has uh, proportionately more uh, um, financial uh, levies than the than the other banks. It has a, a fairly decent size uh, branch network, so it has a high cost base. You're talking analysts are talking about you know when all of these bad loans are have been stripped out. You're talking about return on equity in the region of about three, four, five percent. That's not the type of return that an investor wants. What kind investor, of return would an investor you're want? You're talking a minimum of about eight. Right, okay. So what happens? That's a big question. I mean, we've been talking about the third force for a long time. Uh, Ultra Ulster Bank? Potentially. I mean, ABC? again, Ulster Bank is a bank that has a very high uh, has a very high cost income ratio as well. Its balance sheet has shrunk down to a size where, you know, it needs to, to start growing again. Um Possibly, and the good thing about Ulster Bank is that it's it's got a, a larger franchise. It's got a decent SMB uh, business as well, whereas Permanent is very much a, bon- a monoline. Right, um, Cliff, we're going to have to talk about Brexit. Um, no escape, even there's no escape from it. I'm afraid. Yeah, you know, it's Christmas. Absolutely, it's been hanging over us um, like a dark cloud now for a long mm. time, for nearly two and a half years. There seems to be no end in sight. We've no idea what the final shape of any deal between the UK and the European Union is, is going to look like because it doesn't seem like Theresa May can get anything through Parliament. Uh, and all the while, uh, uh, Irish companies and the Irish state are quietly doing contingency planning, trying to figure out what it's going to mean and how they can align their businesses to whatever new reality is coming down the track. How, how are we doing? How would you, How would you, if you were to rate us, how would you score it? I think we're, we're probably doing... Uh to an extent, as much as much as we can do, given the uncertainties that we face, I think the problem for the government is that it has based a lot of its planning on the idea that the transition agreement uh, or the transition period, should I say, will come into place when the UK leaves, uh, and that the big changes will come in two two and a half years' time. So that yeah, under so the Brexit which, Day, just to remind people, Brexit yeah. Day is March twenty ninth next yeah. year. Yeah, and the transition will run out uh, in December twenty twenty. So the idea was that uh, 
very little would change in the transition period. That would give us time to prepare for some kind of a less favourable arrangement after that. And now what we're facing is uh, the risk of everything changing on the 29th of March next year if the much-discussed no-deal Brexit comes to pass. And it's interesting, what we're looking at at the moment is the since the, uh, the upheaval in the House of Commons and the inconclusive European summit, everyone now fears that the withdrawal agreement is dead or... or, or are at least in, in, in intensive care. Uh, and the risk now is that we could be heading towards a no deal. So the British government has published its, some of its plans, uh, indicated army reserves. The army might be put in reserve to help if needed. Uh, the EU has published plans today. The Irish government is due to publish its plans. Uh, but I think certainly talking to people in business, talking to people who are trading across borders, reading what uh, the logistics industry, uh, as, the, as it now calls itself, is saying there is no sense really that anybody's ready for this. And this really is the conundrum we face. Everyone in business is saying this can't be allowed to happen. This is going to be catastrophic. No matter what arrangements and uh, work-throughs you put in place, this just can't happen. It's going to lead to ports being gummed up. It's going to lead to stuff not being delivered. It's going to lead to 101 things that no one's even thought about. But at the same time, the politicians can't as yet get themselves together to find a way to avoid it. And I think what businesses are hoping for is that even at the 11th hour, if a political deal isn't done, something will be done to extend out the period. But the problem is relationships are so bad, we can't rely on that happening. Now, one of the sticking points is the backstop around the Irish border. And we've been very consistent in our view on this. And the European Union, the other member states have backed those up um, so far. The hardline Brexiteers and the DUP who campaigned for Brexit and uh, are not in favour of the backstop as currently proposed, they're very much pointing the finger at the Irish government for being too hardline on this and for not being prepared to budge. So I ask the question, did we overplay our hand on this? Given the threat now, the sure. real threat of a no-deal Brexit. Sure. I, I think the row was going to have to be had at some stage and it was probably better to have the row up front rather than get to a situation where a deal was done and then face the difficulty and everyone say to us, oh, look, would you not live with some kind of checks on the Irish border? Uh, I think once Brexit was announced, this problem uh, this problem came into existence and there was no easy way out of it really at all. But you're right, it could be, the th- it is a thing now that is uh, more than anything else, I suppose, pushing us towards a, pushing us towards a hard Brexit. There's, there's, if there's no, no deal Brexit, we have border control. Border anyway. Yeah, absolutely we do. Uh, the flip side is that um, when Theresa May laid out her case, first of all, in Lancaster House, uh, the kind of breakfast she was talking about then would have meant that a border would have been needed anyway. No customs union, no single market, exactly. no free movement. Immediately immediately pointed towards a border being needed. So I think the Irish government needed to put down a marker and, uh, at that stage and, and, and it did that. All right. It has thrown up the po- prospect of maybe a slim one at this stage of a second referendum. What do you think? I, more than slim, I'd say. Uh, such is the chaos in British politics that anything could happen. It is one of the few ways that Theresa May might in some way save the Conservatives in government by agreeing to it, although, of course, there's a complication that Jeremy Corbyn isn't as yet calling for a second re- referendum either. He wants a general election. Well, she's not uh, talking about a second referendum. She's ruling it out. Absolutely. But uh, it may be the only thing in the end that could, that could 
that can get her through in the in the absence of anything else. We've seen some very interesting things the last few days. For example, Jacob Reeks Mogg coming back a lot from his opposition to Theresa May, saying that he he would in fact support her in a vote of confidence, not necessarily in the withdrawal agreement, but in a vote of confidence. Well, that's an anti-Jeremy Corbyn thing. It is, it is. But I think there's also a feeling in the, there may also be a feeling growing at the hard Brexit camp that if they don't somehow get out of Europe now, the risk is that a second referendum will be called. And who knows what the result will be. So last week he had no confidence in her, but this week he might. Just after the vote, he came out and said this woman must go. Now he's reversed Ferret completely. Yeah, he said she should go and visit the Queen and book Absolutely. So uh, what he said, she could go go as, as Tory leader as well. So I think the fear in the Brexiteers lobby, and if there is anything that can save Theresa May, it's this, the fear is that of a second referendum of the whole thing being reversed and of Britain after all this not leaving the EU uh, if there's anything that's going to save her it's going to be that but at the same I, don't, I, I, okay. I think it's probably gone past even that uh, Joe bankers pay is another issue that's been hanging around like a bad smell and the government uh, having to grasp the nettle this year and go for a review of pay uh, on the back of uh, some fairly strong comments from the AIB chairman about the impact that this you know, the cap on salaries for executives and the ban on bonuses essentially uh, is having on his business. Yeah, um, AIB has been the bank that's kind of done most of the running on this over the last number of years. If you cast back to five years ago, mm. the previous chairman, also an English chairman, uh, David Hodgkinson, executive chairman, had uh, actually, he was non-executive at the time, um, had raised the issue of reintroducing a long-term incentive plan and he brought it to the Department of Finance. That's when David Duffy was in charge. Exactly, and it was shot down very quickly. Um, so it came up, it reared its head last year in the run-up to AIB's IPO. You had a number of uh, investors raising on the margins uh, the fact that... Uh, remuneration is not uh, performance-based, so that how can they be sure that uh, that's, uh, senior bankers' uh, interests could be aligned with that with senior with, with, with major investors? So they highlighted that as a risk, and they came back in, in, in March of this year, and they proposed in their annual report going to shareholders to reintroduce a bonus plan. And it would basically be a deferred uh, bonus plan where, uh, bonus, where bonuses would be issued by way of stock over uh, a number of years that would invest in five, six, seven years' time. And I think the bank would have had to repay all of its money to the state before the bankers would actually get any of this. Exactly. I mean, money. you can tie a an incentive plan to anything and I suppose to, 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 to make it uh, something that would pass with... Uh, palatable, to make it palatable. Exactly. Yeah. With, uh, with, with the politicians, it had to really tie it. Well, Pascal Donoghue wasn't having any of that. So Pascal... Um, Obviously, the bank, Pascal wanted to go first. He didn't want to be led by a bank. So he decided in, in, in April, ahead of uh, an AGM vote on it, using his 71% stake to vote against it. Um, by doing so, he said he was going to call a review and uh, bring in outside consultants. And consultants were appointed a number of months ago, uh, Corn Ferry. They're a, a big uh, executive search firm to look into the whole area of, 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 of compensation. A draft report is due to come in. Um, we understand that it's going to say that uh, the cap on pay, which is 500000 for 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 CEOs of bailed out banks, with the exception of Bank of Ireland, um, be eased and that a return to bonuses in time be, be reintroduced. Now, politically, how is that really possible? Uh, when you have a minority government, uh, you have Fianna Fáil signing up in the last week to extending uh, the lifetime of a government uh, for another 12 months, there's not a chance 
of, of, of this being passed. And even if there were a new election in, say, uh, early 2020, um, the likelihood of a new government bringing this to the top of the table uh, in terms of, because uh, it'd have sure. to legislate, uh, is, is nigh impossible. So it's going to drag on for a number of years. Yeah, now AIB has lost two senior executives uh, in recent months. Mark Burke is uh, leaving, stepping down as uh, Chief Financial Officer, and Bernard Byrne. Uh, announces departure as chief executive to go and work for a stockbroker Davy. Although they have appointed uh, Colin Hunt as chief executive, he's essentially chief executive and waiting, awaiting regulatory re- approval, which could take some months. Yeah, I mean, I mean w- was was pay at the core of those departures? Uh, certainly, before um, uh, Bernard had left, he had highlighted the fact that. Uh, what he called mid-teens percentage of his top uh, top executives, top 200, had left since the bank had returned to the main markets back in June of 2016, 2017. So he certainly highlighted it as an issue. Uh, it's interesting that a week after uh, Richard Pym had spoken, uh, the chairman had spoken at a banking conference saying that AIB was beginning to turn into a training ground for, uh, for executives that would go on to higher uh, compensated positions in, in, in rivals, particularly as Brexit promises to bring uh, more institutions to Ireland. But we also have a fairly sizable wholesale banking industry down the IFSC. Um, the fact, a week after that, you had uh, Bernard Byrne saying that he was leaving. So you can be guaranteed that, that Bernard would uh, receive more uh, as uh, head of capital markets in, in, in Davy and wouldn't be subject to the same kind of public scrutiny. Right, OK. Well, that's an issue. Uh, no doubt it's going to spill over into 2019. Um, Cliff, just finally, let's let's talk about uh, the public finances. Uh, we had budget 2019, a bit of a damn squib, really. You know, gave us a few quid here and there, but uh, probably not uh, nothing to write home about. Um, but we do have bulging coffers in terms of corporation tax. It's going to top 10 billion euro for the first time. It's really accelerated over the past uh, few years. We're obviously getting a lot of money in from a small number of big multinationals. Uh, concerns being raised about how this money is being used, that it might be used uh, for day-to-day spending. We've huge overrun in spending again in health um, this year. And the National Competitiveness Council coming out uh, today and basically a scaling assessment of uh, the cost of living and, and competitiveness in, in this economy. How do we square the circle on this? It's a tricky one. I mean, I think uh, the thing that has exercised the First of all, the Fiscal Advisory Council and, and subsequently the Competitors Council in its report today was what happened be, just before the budget when the government first told us about this huge uh, over expected overrun in corporation tax, over a billion more than had been expected, and said, by the way, there's an overrun in health and effectively one is going to go and pay for the other. Uh, maybe not quite as straightforward as that, but but near enough. And of course, then what you have is a potential one-off source of revenue going towards a ongoing source of spending. Uh, so it's tricky. And the problem then is that the higher level of health spending is built into the base for 2019. Uh, and therefore, you're you're relying on your corporation tax to keep going. Now, such is the strength of the revenues that the government has written off some of the tax, if you like, and said, OK, we'll assume that isn't going to recur next year. But nonetheless, you're right. The Competitiveness Council today pointed out, as the Fiscal Council did before, that Uh, 40% of corporation tax comes from the top 10 payers. Uh, And indeed, they went beyond that and and looked at our wider economic reliance on these companies, particularly the pharma sector in terms of our exports, accounting for more than 40% of exports uh, in terms of employment, in terms of the public finances and tax revenue. Say, look, 
we clearly have a boom and bust bust risk in the Irish economy, which everyone has been talking about. But we also have another risk, which is that we're very reliant on a very small number of very big companies uh, for our economic fortunes that we really need to diversify, particularly in the context of, of Brexit coming. And, you know, it's a new perspective, all right. Uh, Ireland has, uh, you know, bet, bet heavily on these big multinationals, given them very significant incentives to set up here. It's got that investment back in spades. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, we don't but have any other choice, do we? I mean, how no, how would absolutely. this economy function without the investment it wouldn't, by large no, multinationals? No, no, it wouldn't. I think the point that the uh, that the competitors council were making is that we need to to spread our bets a bit, start spending more money on developing inf- infrastructure to allow domestic companies to grow, to help them enter new markets, uh, to help them, you know, them be a, be an engine of growth, but and, and be more productive because there's a massive gap between productivity and these big companies albeit hard to measure and in smaller Irish companies. But the difficulty there is that's a long game. And we've been talking about this for the last 10 or 20 years. <laughs> and the reality is uh, that the politically easier uh, the politically, politically easier route is to uh, pay money to multinationals. They come in, they buy big places, they create a lot of jobs very quickly. It's been good for the economy, but it has left us with a lot of eggs okay. in, in a few baskets. So we've got to keep our fingers crossed. Keep our fingers crossed for the tech and pharma sectors, I think. Uh, I hope that Donald Trump doesn't do anything too crazy. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it is kind of ironic, I suppose, that we were in the crosshairs in terms of this corporation tax debate in the last few years. Uh, and, and in fact, the uh, one of the effects of the crackdown that's happened is that these big companies have been moving things, moving assets from tax havens to Ireland. So where they have businesses of substance. Where they have businesses of substance. But nonetheless, the substance of the business here are completely separate, let's face it, from the reality of the intellectual property receipts, assets yeah. and tax receipts and what's booked in Ireland. So kind of ironic that while we've been in the crosshairs, as the process has started internationally to crack down on tax evasion, we've actually gained from it. You'd have to reckon that in the next phase we might lose a bit. Let's just hope that it's gradual and, and manageable. All right, let's see how that plays out in 2019. My thanks to Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be joined by Mark Paul and Laura Slattery to talk about some of the major stories they covered during the year. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, I'm joined in studio by Mark Paul and Laura Slattery to recap on some of the big stories they worked on during the year. Mark, we're going to start with the data breach with INM, and I'm going to suggest to you this is probably the corporate story of the year in so many different ways. I mean, it really was extraordinary. The revelations that came out almost week after week were in the, you know, earlier this year were just extraordinary. They were just extraordinary. I mean, you know, it's a big story for a number of reasons. The, the, the allegations that have been made are probably the most significant data breach in the history of the state when you look at the type of information that was breached um, the alleged purposes for which it may have been breached. Um, um, Just remind listeners what happened. Um, what's alleged to have happened and what's alleged by the state by the state, state investigators is that Leslie Buckley, the former chairman of Independent News, News and Media, um, who was there uh, uh, as a board representative of Dennis O'Brien, um, that he oversaw a secret... Uh, operation, to, if you want to call it that, to to secretly take the backup data tapes uh, of INM off site 
um, where they were brought to Wales and copied and interrogated, is the phrase used, um, for information on a vast range of people. That includes journalists, um, that includes um, lawyers who have acted against Dennis O'Brien in tribunals. Um, it includes uh, people that would have been opponents of Dennis O'Brien in, in, in business duels. Um, now, look, the, the, and Dennis O'Brien's company, uh, an Isle Man company called Bladen, um, um, is alleged by the ODCE, the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, to have paid the bill for all of this. So when you look at the nature of the data that was allegedly breached, now there's, there's a, a, a range of, of, of different investigations ongoing into this now. You look, at, you look at the nature of the data and the purposes and the people allegedly involved, um, and you can see why it's the biggest corporate story of the year. It's brought um, one of Ireland's most prominent companies, Independent News and Media, the biggest newspaper publisher in the state, the owner of titles like the Irish Independent um, um, and the Herald. These are in everybody's hands every day. Um, it's brought a company like that to the brink. It really has brought it to the brink. It's rep reputationally, it is at the brink. Um, there's been a complete turnover of its management, scandal after scandal, um, um, every month for the entire year. And this is the second year this, this, is, this has been going on. Two years that company has been in crisis. And the ODC went to the High Court and sought permission to have inspectors appointed to INM. And these inspectors have far-reaching powers. They can really delve deep into the company to find out precisely what happened. They can interrogate uh, people as they, as they see fit, essentially. And it's a very rarely used power, it, the it, appointment of High Court inspectors. Hi, hi, the last time um, um, listeners will probably remember this power being used in such a high-profile way was for DCC. Mm. And that's over a decade ago. Um, um, so uh, it, it, this doesn't happen every day of the week. I mean, so, sort of just to give you a quick, I suppose, chronology of, of, of how the whole thing played out this year. I mean, obviously, the second half of last year was sort of an investigative phase for the ODC. This year, you know, uh, everything came to the boil. Um, um, it started off in January when, when, when Leslie Buckley announced his departure. He left in March. Um, um, and then about a week or so after he left in March, um, the roof blew off, basically. The ODC went to the High Court with uh, a 290-page affidavit from Ian Drennan, the Director of Corporate Enforcement, probably the most remarkable document ever filed in a court in Irish corporate history, which detailed a litany of allegations um, 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 in relation to you know, news talk deals and, and, and the data breach and a lot of stuff. Um, and that formed the basis for the case. Um, um, i and fought that and fought the appointment of the High Court inspectors until they lost in, in September. But when they did lose in September, let's just, I think we should just remind people of some of the, the statements that the judge, Peter Kelly, made when he allowed the appointment of High Court inspectors. He said that, um, 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 he, now, nobody was on trial, right? There was no criminal trial. But he said that in his view, Leslie Buckley was guilty of misconduct and misfeasance in his role at INM. Now, I don't think those words have ever been uttered um, um, by a judge in relation to the chairman of an Irish PLC before. Um, he said that there was a pattern of wrongful disclosures between um, Leslie Buckley and Dennis O'Brien, which the judge said in his judgment appeared to be for an unlawful purpose. It should um, be remembered that Dennis O'Brien is just under 30% of INM's shares, so he's not he's not the majority shareholder, but he's a very influential shareholder. Very influential shareholder. Now the question is whether or not he controls INM. There's only one body in the state that finds whether or not people control media organisations. That's the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. They say he doesn't, um, um, but they're allowed to find what control is. There's no statutory definition of control um, in, in Irish media law. Um, so yeah, it's 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 drawn Dennis O'Brien once again into the heart of a highly controversial. Um, um, story about business ethics, about governance. What's Leslie Buckley said? And what's Dennis O'Brien saying about all this? Nothing. Dennis O'Brien has said absolutely nothing since the story of uh, 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 goings on at INM first broke over two years ago. Dennis O'Brien has said precisely nothing. Well, the High Court, High Court inspectors have the powers 
to interview him and yes. to require him to... He's on a list. He's on a list of people that they want to interview. documents, maybe. Yes, yes, they can. You see, one of the problems that faced the ODC in its investigation um, is that it's there to uphold company law and company law applies to directors and, and, and to officers of a company um, um, and, to, and to management. Um, um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, d- d- it doesn't really apply to shareholders. Um, Dennis O'Brien is a shareholder in the independent news and media. He's not a director. He's not a manager. The ODC had no powers to compel him to provide any information. Um, um, inspectors will. The inspectors have the power, yeah. And the inspectors have wide-ranging powers. It's, it's, they're, they're officers of the court and they're officers of, of the high court, um, um, one of the highest courts in the land. They, they have investigative powers. They're a kind of a quasi I suppose they'd have, you know, you know, you have magistrates in other countries that have powers of a court and investigative powers. D- 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 these are investigators for a court. Now, Leslie Buckley has made some limited commentary, hasn't he, uh, saying that he rejects the allegations and he's going to fight them. He said he rejects all and every allegations and that he's looking forward to the chance to 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 to. to prove his innocence, not that he has to prove his innocence, but that, but that he is innocent and, and, and to clear his name. He said, he's, he said he will fight all and every allegation. He has said that consistently at every turn. And looking forward, what's the next, in terms of the timetable, what's the next milestone in this case? The two, uh, the two High Court inspectors, um, Sean Callan, who's a, a, a criminal barrister, an Irish criminal barrister, and Robert Fleck, who's a UK lawyer who's been appointed by the Bank of England in the past to investigate stuff, they will make their first report to, uh, to the judge, to the High Court, around about April. Um, and around about April time, Peter Kelly gave them to. Now he didn't set any strictures on them in terms of, um, um, you know, there's a whole rake of stuff that they're investigating, right? Um, he didn't set any strictures in terms of the order in which they have to report. But you would imagine that the data breach, which is the the the, 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 the allegation of biggest public concern, will be the first thing they'll address in their in their report in their interim report in April. Who picks up the bill for this? Who picks up the bill for for the investigation? Um, well. Well, I suppose in, in the first instance, the state picks it up. These are state bodies uh, carrying it out. Who will ultimately pay for it? Um, I suppose it depends on the findings, doesn't it? Um, um, and, 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 and who so is... So I&M shareholders may, could, may well have to dig deep into their pockets to pay some or all of the costs. Well, well undoubtedly, no matter where the investigation goes, undoubtedly they, they, they will have to dig deep because I&M has clocked up millions and millions and millions of euros in legal fees already. It is, it is, it is announced this to shareholders. But also, I mean, look at the share price. Um, 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 there's another indirect cost to shareholders. The share price is below six cents a share. I mean, it's, it's the penny stock of penny stocks on the Irish Stock Exchange. Um, 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 you know, it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, the, the inspectors say in the report about their communications with Dennis O'Brien. He has said nothing. Um, he has been accused of nothing. But the director of court enforcement has said he paid the bill for this, um, um, this, this data interrogation. And it'll be interesting to see what Dennis O'Brien says about that. OK, Laura, a, a very difficult year for Facebook as well on a, a number of levels. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg found himself in the very unusual position of being grilled by Congress in America to explain the yeah. behaviour of his company. I mean, uh, it's just been pretty much scandal after scandal for Facebook this year. And what it has in common with independent news and media, of course, is that they've both crossed the desk of the D- Data Protection Commissioner. But allow me, if you will, just to run through uh, some of, just some of the, the lowlights of Facebook this year. Um, it was revealed to have uh, allowed the sharing of friends' data when users gave permission to a developer that was passed on to a political consulting firm, Cambridge Analytica, which is connected to Trump. That was the big story at the start of the year, which led to uh, Zuckerberg ending up at Congress trying to answer. <laughs> put Cambridge Analytica yeah. out of business. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it was very, very dodgy what was going on there. Um, you know, Facebook then at the same time, it was still answering questions about um, the, how it was gained 
blamed essentially by uh, uh, accounts of Russian origin during the presidential election in the US was responsible for the spread of fake news. It was singled out quite um, pointedly by UN investigators for accelerating hate speech beach in Myanmar. Um, it was a founder of essentially weaponized anti-Semitism by hiring an attack PR firm that was uh, perpetuating the idea that an anti-Facebook group was linked to the billionaire George Soros. Uh, just today, as we're recording, it was found to have let Netflix and Spotify access users' private messages much more than was previously thought. And throughout all of this, I mean, I haven't even mentioned all of them, of course, <laughs> but it displayed what you know could be said to be like the opposite of a sure touch on its uh, public relations front. It's it's, it's uh, you know, Facebook, you know, like like many tech companies, is kind of plagued by what what, what they call bad actors. You know, to a certain sense, they they say they're at the mercy of all these you know uh, uh, hate speech purveyors and, and bots. Um, but people are starting to say, well, Facebook itself is a bad actor. Um, so it's uh, you know it finishes the year. It still has 1.7 billion monthly active users. It's uh, incredibly successful revenue wise. Do you use it, Laura? Um, I don't really. I still have an account. Uh, in fact, I think I have two accounts, but I'm, I'm not really on it as much anywhere near as I used to be. And that's Mark, um, I, I have a Facebook account, but I deleted the app. I go through it. I go through a browser, so I don't have the app. So they don't know. You know, I mean, they don't. They, they can't follow me around the place on my mobile phone. What's quite funny is a lot of people who have turned against Facebook. You know, it's because they're actually uh, spending their time on Instagram, which doesn't really. You know, uh, I, ne- I never uh, fell for that. Instagram, one. of course, is owned by Facebook, so it doesn't really. You know, the net benefit to the the company stays the same. But um, there's a number of issues outstanding at the end of the year. Mark Zuckerberg's uh, leadership and that of his. Uh, Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg is under serious question and you know the gloss has gone off Cheryl Sandberg somewhat hasn't it yeah I mean she was originally seen as the adult because you know Zuckerberg was very young at the time but that's you know he's not anymore he's well into his 30s now Um, she had had previous career at Google Um, she had even been tipped as a future presidential candidate but that's she'd gone through this awful life experience of losing her husband uh, yeah yeah I mean uh, yeah and she so she had a personal connection with a lot of people Um, even before that uh, very human thing that people can relate to. She had written a book called Lean In uh, about feminism. It was, you know, some people criticised it for being corporate feminism, but other people thought that the message was uh, a helpful one in the sense that, you know, before her, there were a lot of the top corporate women never spoke about, out about feminism at all, just seemed to ignore it. So, yeah. you know, th- so she had a lot of fans, um, but let's just say she has fewer fans now. Sure. Mark, we in Ireland have a slightly schizophrenic uh, relationship with Facebook don't we because on the one hand we're all outraged by all of this stuff that Laura has told us about but on the other hand they're taking over the former AIB or the current AIB campus in Balls Bridge uh, and it's going to give them the scope to add thousands of jobs here in Ireland in years ahead yeah it is I mean I mean the, the as you said, there's, there's thousands of people employed in Dublin already by Facebook. And when they move to the AIB campus in Balls Bridge and when Fibonacci Square, part of that campus is fully built. I mean, they'll have space there for, I don't know, 7,000, 8,000 7, 8, 8, staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they're here to grow. But, you know, uh, uh, they, bring a, they bring a bit of grief onto on, on Ireland as well. There's a cost to that. Um, and yes, we get all these lovely jobs. Um, um, and high-paying jobs. High-paying jobs if you're a Facebook staff member. Yeah, the, I think the average pay 
is about 150 grand if you're a Facebook staff member. Now, if you're a con- most of their most of their employees are not Facebook staff members; they're contractors, third party contractors, and they're paid um, much less. Um, but so we get all these lovely jobs and high paying jobs, a lot of them. Um, but but the grief that we get is is that Ireland is now effectively the the data processing centre for all of Facebook's data outside of the US. So. If you're a Facebook user anywhere in the world apart from the US and you've got a, a data protection issue, um, it's true Helen Dixon's office in Dublin that it goes. Um, and so that has to be investigated. And also as well, Facebook, you know, in the in, in the world of of, of um, tax avoiding gymnastics, you know, Facebook is the Olympian, you know. And, and gold medal winner, is it? Gold medal winner and, and, and it brings all that reputational mither onto the Irish government and, and, and the Irish government often finds itself um, not quite defending tax avoiding practices but certainly um, defending um, 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 their right to exist um, um, internationally and that doesn't do us any favours at all it's as a nation. A juggling act. Uh, Laura, we're going to finish on a slightly brighter note. Uh, Virgin Media came to Ireland in a very big way uh, and we said goodbye to TV3. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about this because it's actually one of my uh, favourite pieces that I, I wrote this year was a look back at the 20-year history of TV3. So, which is now, you know, totally unrecognisable than it was, you know, in 1998, uh, literally because they've rebranded as Virgin Media Television. So all the, the building out there in Ballymount used to be sort of purple branded, huge, huge everywhere. Now it's uh, completely virgin red. And it was a cheap and cheerful operation, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Absolutely. It. It, was, it was all about... It was just, the Ryanair of television. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was the Ryanair of television and it wasn't really, you know, didn't really, wasn't... They were kind of proud of it. They were, they were because proud. Because RT were spending yeah, all that money to spend, but TV3 were able to put out all of this content on a shoestring budget. Yeah. I mean, it was about survival and that's what they did. They survived the recession. Uh, they survived the entrance of uh, UTV Ireland and they've emerged, you know, this mm. year... Um, with the, they had the Six Nations rights for the first time at the start of the year, which brought in great viewerships. And ends of the year in a high note. I mean, I mean, make of this what you will, but I'm a celebrity. Uh, get me out of here, which is one for 22 consecutive nights. It was watched by an average of 465,000 viewers throughout the run. And, you know, that's just Obviously amazing. Obviously, the Harry Redknapp factor. Yeah, the Harry Redknapp factor. The final was watched by 550,000 as he as he triumphed at the end. Uh, but like that really actually hurt uh, so many actually home-produced programmes that were running at the same time in RTE. So um, it hasn't been a great year for TV advertising, but Virgin's done better than uh, than it might have expected to have done at the start of the year. Midway through, we had a, a visit from um, the parent company, uh, Liberty Global. That's a Virgin Media's uh, parent company and that chief executive Mike uh, Fries and uh, John Malone the owner uh, were in town and they John were Malone's saying the biggest landowner in the US this is a man with billionaire, billionaire kind of a, a sort of a you know Rupert Murdoch uh, rival and um, a Dennis O'Brien rival absolutely well. yeah he's a huge figure uh, of Irish uh, descent and um, you know they're saying they've got no limit to their ambition mm-hmm. for TV3 and it's not it's it, Sorry, Virgin. Uh, it's not like they're putting loads of money into it or anything. It's only like 10 to 15 million that they put in an investment. And, you know, they've been putting 100 million about into the broadband network, which is really where it's all at. But I just thought I'd mention it because it's, it has sort of changed the, the, the landscape a bit. And this is the year where we've seen it most clearly. Um, you know, it's competing with Sky, which is, of course, now owned by the US giant Comcast. That was the other thing that happened this year on the media front. And it's got they've both got Netflix uh, sitting out there uh, spending billions. But uh, it's 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 an it's an interesting change. And there's going to be many issues, I think, in the years ahead for for the uh, broadcast sector. And of course, 
it's sort of like the orphan child at the Department of Communications, which has a new minister for various reasons. Uh, we've got Richard Bruton now rather than um, Dennis Stockton, but uh, it's uh, Virgin will be happier, shall we say, with their 2018 than some of their competitors. All right, well, something to look forward to for them uh, for 2019. Mark Paul and Laura Slattery, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Joe Brennan, Laura Slattery and Mark Paul. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Our next show will be published on St. Stephen's Day when I'll be joined in studio by businessman Morris Pratt, property developer Michael O'Flynn and Anne Graham of the National Transport Authority. They'll be making their predictions for 2019 across Brexit, housing and retail. And you can keep up to date with the latest business news over the festive period via our feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and happy Christmas.